Welcome to the Cedarville Stories podcast. Jeff Heyman can be easily spotted on campus as he drives up in his vintage Cutlass convertible. But his love for vintage cars is just one small thing that makes his life interesting. Jeff served in the United States Air Force for 29 years, reaching the rank of Colonel before retiring in 2010. After retiring from the military, Cedarville had a faculty opening and Jeff decided to pursue it. Listen as he shares his many stories on the Cedarville Stories podcast. Thank you, Sarah. And hello, everyone. I'm Mark Weinstein. and Welcome back to another episode of the Cedarville Stories podcast. I trust you enjoyed hearing the story of Joanna Kirchie and how a young Cedarville student was used to change the life of an area resident several decades ago. It was a great story, and I believe you will be enlightened and encouraged with my conversation today with Dr. Jeff Heyman, Dean of the Robert W. Plasser School of Business. Dr. Heyman served a distinguished 29-year career in the United States Air Force, reaching to the level of colonel before joining the faculty at Cedarville University. While in the Air Force, Dr. Heyman taught at the United States Air Force Academy and was an Air Force Fellow at the Brookings Institution. As the Dean of the Robert W. Plaster School of Business, Dr. Heyman has a passion for thinking biblically and economically. He considers the integration of, of a Christian worldview in the broader society the most positive social policy, and he exudes this passion with his faculty and students. Outside of the classroom, Dr. Heyman enjoys mentoring students and loves to restore automobiles, which we'll talk about early in the program. You're going to enjoy today's program with Dr. Jeff Heyman, Dean of the Robert W. Plasser School of Business. Welcome, Jeff. Glad to be here. Uh, this is unusual for us. Usually, I know you, you do a lot of interviews, but I don't get the opportunity to ask you the question, so it's going to be a treat for me to dive into your story, and there's so much I want to talk about, uh, but let's start by talking about a topic that has no connection to what you or, or I do professionally at Cedarville. I know you like restoring cars. How many cars have you restored in your lifetime? Uh, actually, not very many. Really? Uh, I, I had The first one I, I really did from doing everything with was a, a 1970 Datsun Roadster uh, when I was uh, uh, 22 years old. Did it with my dad and uh, drove that for a while. Taught my wife how to drive a stick in it. And and the the reason was is I, we'd had that uh, car in the family when I was a kid. I, I when I was six years old, they, yeah. they they let us ride in the back seat. It wasn't really a back seat, a package tray actually. You could do without seat belts and everything else. Yeah. And and it got parked for various reasons for years and had to have some body work done, rebuilt the engine, and so th- that kind of got me uh, on, on the bug. Uh, but when I went to college, I, I enjoyed car- young guys at yeah. that time. Certainly ca- cared about cars, and uh, I, I had a cool car that I liked, uh, a Cutlass, and I've always had a, 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 an Oldsmobile Cutlass of some sort. Okay, my whole life. In fact, now, I still have my original Cutlass uh, that one day will get into the uh, the queue. I hope. Well, this is going to be an odd transition, mm-hmm. but I want to I want to move from cars to Jesus, okay. and uh, really interested in hearing. Your, your spiritual story, your spiritual journey, and how you came to know Christ. Can you share that with us? Uh, yeah. I mean, so, so my mom was a Christian, uh, and my dad uh, wasn't, but she drug us to a, a you know mainline Protestant Methodist church when I was a kid. Okay. And uh, I can't remember a time when I did not believe in God. I mean, I talked to God all the time when I was three years old. I knew there was a God. I mean, it's just... Now, that that's independent of Jesus, right? I right. mean, I, I, I was aware of Jesus, but it was the idea, the idea that there would not be a, a creator, something else 
just seemed absurd to me. I, I can't remember that ever not being true. Uh, I, I would, uh, I call my salvation experience, you know, uh, at, at a VBS, uh, I think it was about seventh grade, uh, you know, and, and I, the specific thing, they had an altar call at the end of the, the week yeah. of vacation Bible school. And it was, and it really was at that moment I decided, yeah, it, I always knew God, but am I ready to follow Jesus? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and as all, everybody's going down there, it almost felt like a lot of pressure. People watching me not to go because I was by then, you know, uh, probably 12 or so. And when littler kids are going, but I, I finally knuckled under and I just have to submit and I'm ready to commit. Yeah. And so I, I consider that uh, my uh, salvation experience. For some serving in the military, they decide to serve for various reasons. The most obvious one is right after 9-11, uh, the emotion the, of the attack prompted a lot of people, even people that we know, to enter the military. What, what prompted you to join the military? Yeah, well, my, uh, uh, my father was in the Air Force, and uh, my eldest brother, half-brother, was in the Marine Corps. And a lot of my dad's brothers had been in the military. And my dad, uh, he was enlisted, and he, he just kind of told my, my brother and myself if uh, the, if we could get in the academy, we were going to the Air Force Academy. He yeah. wanted his sons to be officers, do better than him. And and yeah. I, at the time, I, I said, well, God, if you want me to go to the Air Force Academy, I'll be accepted. And if you don't, I'll just go to the University of Arkansas and, and go woo pig zooey or something. Right? <laughs> uh, I study engineering there. Uh, but uh, I was accepted and I considered, you know, I was I was fine that, that I thought, you know, e- even then I already had a, a pretty strong view of God's sovereignty. If God wants me to go, I'm going to go there. And so I'd left it up to him and, okay, God wants me to go. So where did you serve once you graduated from the yeah, Air Force the, Academy? The, the, uh, I, I, I was not what we call PQ or pilot qualified, and at the time you couldn't use corrective surgery, which you can now to, to go uh, 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 into, into flight training. And I always knew that. Uh, so I uh, decided, okay, what, what should I do? And uh, it was a great time, you know, to, to, to be going into the military. I went in 1981, and that's when Ronald Reagan became president. He was going to rebuild the military, and there was a lot of patriotic fervor in the country and support for the military, which we hadn't had in the 1970s. So uh, defense budgets were rising. Anyway, I, I remember uh, um, I was good at math, and, and Air Force Academy is an engineering school, so of course I'm going to be some sort of engineer. And I remember the department head came down one time and you know gave us the spiel about the, the Soviet Union's trying to take over the world, and, <laughs> and we, are, we only are able to resist them by our technological superiority. And if, and if you have the aptitude to be an engineer, you ought to be an engineer. I said, okay, I'll be an engineer. And besides, the other, the other high motivating factor for me, since I knew I was not going to be a pilot, uh, was not even qualified to be a navigator because you had to have 2100, and I did not uh, in one eye, was uh, I, I, I feared greatly that my, my career field, if I was not an engineer, was going to be a missile officer and they'd stick me in some hole in some place cold in, in America. And I didn't have a, at, at that point in time, that did not really appeal to me. And I looked at where all the engineering assignments were and they were a pretty good uh, basis in the CONUS. So where did you serve? Uh, so first assignment was a great assignment in Tennessee, Arnold Engineering Development Center. And uh, I, I tested jet engines. Uh, I was an aeronautical engineer at the Air Force Academy. And I got to do a lot of work uh, testing general electric engines specifically. So I spent a lot of time up here uh, at Wright-Patterson and at the Evendale facility of GE in Cincinnati, North Cincinnati. But you never served at Wright-Pat. No, no, no. Uh, after I, I uh, it's interesting, uh, the one shot I, I was uh, uh, offered to come, he, following on that Tennessee to come here, 
uh, there was a general that wanted me to be a part of the B-2 flight test program at, at Wright-Patt, and I would be running the engine side of the flight test program for the B-2 because the engine in that uh, B-2 was a derivative of what we call the F-110 and F-101 core kind of engines okay. that I had tested AADC. Uh, but by, by that time, my wing, my center commander had, had teed me up for that for, to, to an answer to this general, but I had already talked to another general about going to the space industry hmm. and he had given a, an opportunity and then so the the center command well you don't have to go to just because i are you've already talked to this other general officer and so my wife and i asked okay do we want to go to sunnyvale california in the bay area or do we want to go to dayton ohio and, and shock without kids at the time so we didn't need a house an apartment would be fine we decided to go to the bay area of california yeah. And, and, and that's when I my transition out of the aircraft systems into the space systems. Now, you also spent time, I believe, in the Pentagon, right? I did. That, that was much later. Yeah, that, that was around 9-11. Uh, it was uh, 2001 to 2004 I was in, in at the Pentagon. So let's, let's go back to, to your time in the Pentagon and 9-11. What was it like uh, for you? Because I've heard you tell students about this. Uh, what was it like to be in the Pentagon when the one plane uh, crashed nearby? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, at, at it's, it was a surreal day for everybody. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I the interesting thing. I mean, I was up at the front office of uh, the uh, in the general's office that I, I was working for at the time, and you know, we uh, the guy told me the executive officer that there had been a plane hit hit in in, in the tower, and uh, I'm go up there a little bit later, and just as I wasn't watching the television, my he said, look, another plane just hit. And I mean, instantly, you no know. No clue what's going on yet. Not the first one, but when he said the second one hit, it was pretty obvious. Yeah. I mean, and then I remember telling one of the guys, I says, okay, I wonder what five-sided building would be a good target next, mm. right? I mean, because you don't know what else and what else is going on, but I mean, there's there's no, uh, you know, you, you just go back to your your desk and uh, I forget how many minutes, I think it was, you know, 45, 50 minutes later. And it just felt that slight shudder in, in the, the building. And we, I looked over the cubicle to the other guy. Is that what, and just before we even got, is that what I think it is? The sirens go off and, uh, mm-hmm. and then you're freaking out what's just happened. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I would have probably freaked out myself, but one of the things that actually helped me, I saw, uh, you know, uh, this this uh, enlisted guy start to melt down a little bit, you know, because obviously pretty, uh, uh, um, very emotional. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Nobody had ever had anything like that happen, oh. and then that just, you know, okay, take charge. <laughs> hey, let's get out, go, guys. Here, you know, when I was able to think about others, it took the fear out of myself. It wasn't that I wasn't fearful, but seeing that person needed me, you know, it yeah. just helped me to, uh, just to evacuate. Is that, and that's all I did. And then you, you, it took 20 minutes or so to get out of the building. And then you, you walk in and finally get out because there's 20,000 time, roughly 20,000 people in, in the Pentagon. It takes a long time to get out. Uh, and, and then, you know, this, I, I went out on, uh, uh, let's see the east uh, side uh, on the on the Pentagon City uh, side, and you're walking and there's ashes falling on you and so forth, uh, and, and 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 no one knew what to do. That was what was what was crazy about it. What do you do? <laughs> you know, there, there's no recall. We had no procedure to, you know, go form up in this area and right. say who's in the building, who's not. Uh, <laughs> do we go somewhere? Uh, what you did know? you do? Uh, yeah. So, so well, we hung out. I remember, and I'm watching. Uh, uh, this uh, young airman, I remember watching her just passed out in front of me. I mean, really? yeah, from shock. Uh, yeah. Oh, 
traumatic. Yeah. And so uh, one of the, one of the uh, and it's just watching the other people. So finally I, I walked out, you know, is, is anything up? You know, we, you have to commute in. And so I didn't have a car there to even leave. And I, I go over to Pentagon City to the Metro and, and I'm wearing my uniform and peep, everybody's running up to me. I mean, they're just fearful. Everybody's afraid, and they're looking for me. Look at me for answers. Like I, I'm, some major in the Air Force is going to tell them what to do about this, but I don't. Okay, go home. <laughs> just start telling people what to do because they, they they just were in panic. They Everybody, couldn't. They couldn't function. They, they, yeah, so they needed some help. Uh, you know, leading, and you know, walked, did that for a few minutes, and, and the, they, they turned off the uh, the metros, and and then I walked back over to the Pentagon. And, you know, well, the building's still on fire over here. You know, what do we do? And then one of my contractors that uh, offered to, uh, to give me a ride home. And you couldn't call anybody. That was the other thing. This, the cell phone circuits were, were totally booked. And, yeah. and, and I kept trying again and again and again, to, you know, because I knew that, uh, you know, that my wife had seen. She had to be pretty nervous. Oh, yeah. How close were you to the? I was on the opposite side of the building. Okay. Yeah, I just felt the building shut. But as, as soon as you got to the door, you opened the door, this, uh, the smell of the JPA, you know, coming through yeah. uh, the jet fuel. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's, uh, that's sort of still an emotional story uh, even today. Jeff, as a follow-up to where you've been stationed uh, in the Air Force, I'm curious, what is your most exciting or exhilarating work that you've done or you did in the Air Force? Yeah, well, being a, an Air Force officer was uh, – uh, a tremendous honor. Uh, it, there's just a number of ways that you can serve your country in different vocations. I was blessed to be in the engineering and, and space side of the house. I uh, got to do a lot of fun things. I uh, like to, to, to tease people. Uh, my name flies overhead uh, three times a day, ascending three times a day, descending over every part of the globe, and will do so for the next 250 years, depending on atmospheric drag of a satellite that I helped launch. Uh, and so that's kind of a cool little factoid that I, I like to know that uh, uh, the whole launch team, when we built the, the satellite, were able to sign our names effectively, almost like to a piece of aluminum foil. It's that tight material. Yeah. Uh, but but that, that so that's fun. But the most exhilarating was was no doubt about it. I was uh, uh, privileged to be the Air Force launch director for the first successful intercept of a ballistic missile uh, coming. Uh, we launched it out of Alaska, uh, and the intercept test was done out of Vandenberg. And, and that makes it a threat representative target because that would be the profile or very close that North Korea or China would launch a nuke over uh, that uh, northern latitudes. And uh, why it was exhilarating because it had never been done effectively making a bullet hit a bullet. Uh, and so when the time we launched that rocket, uh, uh, the interceptor, we had to detect the uh, the, the la- initial launch from from uh, Kodiak, uh, Alaska, and then uh, and then. S- uh, have our vehicle launch and it was 16 minutes and 35 seconds till the intercept we knew exactly what the profile would be and we had to sit there and wait we'd launched a rocket would it work would it hit and uh, many of the tests before that had failed not in the sense that they'd failed we, we might have stopped the test because something wasn't right but this one went all the way and and now the you know if we missed that would have been a big blow uh to the uh uh, the program, but the uh, the intercept was successful, and uh, the North Korean dictator uh, made some comment the next day that uh, they would continue their uh, their peaceful defense against the military aggressiveness of the United States, and and so we got the world's attention that missile defense was real, and you just can't threaten the United States with a nuclear weapon. Uh, what's interesting about it is the the and and Boeing was the big uh, provider, a uh, big contractor for missile defense uh, for years with the. Uh, a ballistic missile defense agency. They they said their Monte Carlo simulation suggested if you actually launched it, 
Only one in a million would miss. Wow. And I can tell you, uh, in fact, you can find uh, the FTGO2, which is online on YouTube. You can watch a video of it. Uh, we did not hit the missile dead on, but uh, with the kinetic energy uh, of uh, if you hit it anywhere, you're going to do some serious damage, damage and it, it destroyed the target. So for our listeners, how can they find this uh, video? Oh, you just go search on uh, YouTube, uh, FTG-02, uh, 1 September 2006 is I think the date on it. And that was... Uh, uh, you won't hear my low voice on it. I was in the control room, but uh, we have a, a missile defense agency uh, um, public affairs guy that would read out the count of what's happening. I want to uh, go back to your career and what you you, you alluded to that um, you had the choice of going to San Francisco or Bay Area or Dayton, Ohio, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And you, you didn't want to come here, obviously, because of the weather. I understand that. But ultimately, the Lord brought you to the area um, just 15 miles from base. So speak about these thoughts of how you've been able to create a home in Southwest Ohio, even though years ago this was not part of your plan. Sure. Well, uh, I, I came for Cedarville, obviously, uh, you know, and I, I like to tease people that, that I, uh, this was the worst location I was willing to uh, to come to. <laughs> I, I've teased you because you're from Michigan. Uh, there were schools in Michigan like Hillsdale that I might admire, uh, and would would like to to teach at and in one sense I says but God would have to audibly speak to get me to go to Michigan, and he did not choose to do that. And and when I got ready to retire, uh, Cedarville had an opening. It was the only school on my list of of, of locations. And as I said, it was the worst location I was willing to come to. But I will tell you, I've been pleasantly surprised. Uh, the, the main thing, the weather's much better. Here, here's where I'm pleasantly surprised. Uh, I used to you know lived in Arkansas, Tennessee, Virginia. And other places where it's it's green, you know, and, and you have humidity, yeah. but there's all these bugs and it's hot and it's, you know, I, I would much rather trade 10 degrees cooler in the winter uh, in, in uh, uh, southwest Ohio for the 10 degrees cooler in the summer. Because in, in, when it's cooler in the winter, I can still go outside and do what I need to for a few minutes to get whatever's done. Right. But I want to spend a lot of time outside in the summer. Right. And I really appreciate it being much yeah. cooler. In fact, what's really nice here, and I never had this in any other places that I've lived at, we will have every summer, except for that one heat wave like 2011 or something, every summer there will be four, five, sometimes seven or eight days where it's 78 degrees and sunny and low humidity in the summer. Yeah, You'd never have that in in, uh, in Virginia or, uh, <laughs> or, or Tennessee or, or Arkansas. Yeah. And when you try to go out for a walk, the horse flies would eat you alive. Yeah. So I'll that's like, that's San Diego weather. So as you think about your career, you you come here as uh, what, what did you come here as a, a professor or were you the dean? Uh, uh, a professor. Okay, so then you get promoted to the deanship. Well, I was we we were uh, at that time a department, and I was a, a, assistant chair, and then and then uh, uh, then uh, General Reno, our great inaugural dean, came in, yeah. uh, and and I helped him. Uh, for a few years until he was moved up to the the vice president for academics. So, what have you enjoyed the most about being serving as the dean and professor of economics at Cedarville? Yeah, well, I mean, as as dean, you get to influence and kind of provide a little bit more of the direction of where uh, the organization's going. I, I enjoy that uh, getting uh, uh, the ability to uh, to encourage the students in that capacity. Uh, um, I, I have a passion, obviously, for economics, and I enjoy teaching a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know, I, I also enjoy the, some aspects of the, the being the dean. Okay, and you've enjoyed 
lately uh, doing media interviews talking about economics, right? I, I, I do enjoy it. I, I, I don't enjoy, uh, honestly, as we, I think we've talked about, I don't enjoy the television nearly as much as the radio. Because the television, they edit out a bunch of things, and it's it's shorter, right? And, and you can't really really help educate people on the radio. They give you eight minutes or so, and they don't edit it out, and so you can actually tell a story. How does someone? Because your your degree was in engineering. How does someone with a degree in engineering become a dean of a school of business? Well, it's 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 a weird path for sure. But as an engineer, I uh, I got through my graduate degree in engineering, and I realized that that wasn't something that I really wanted to be like an expert on. Uh, once I kind of understood how things worked, I didn't necessarily need to know the physics of how it worked. But uh, I said, if I ever got uh, went back to school again, I would do something I was more interested in. And, and I got interested in, uh, in in economics, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could go teach economics? And, and God opened the doors where I was able to go to the Air Force Academy and teach. I got a second master's in economics, and they liked me enough to send me off for a Ph.D., uh, economics being a, a support discipline to business generally. Uh, and so uh, if, if you're at a small school where economics as a program is not its own department, it's typically housed in schools of business, and that's right. where, where we are here at Cedarville. So for all the things that you've done in your life professionally, what are some stories or what are some situations that prepared you for what you're doing today? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, great experiences. I mean, not just the engineering is, is just, just life stories and, and leadership experience in the Air Force. But uh, especially in the economic world, uh, not only did I was I blessed to get a PhD in it, uh, but because I had a PhD, I was I was selected in, in lieu of going to War College in residence because I'd done it already by seminar. I was picked as an Air Force fellow, and I went to the work for the Brookings Institution for a year, where I did uh, scholarly research with experts on really the nation's premier think tank at the Brookings Institution. That, that's one thing. Uh, but the other thing is uh, when I teach uh, public uh, finance, where we really try to analyze how the public sector operates a, a relative to uh, with economic principles behind it. Uh, my time working on Capitol Hill, I worked two years on Capitol Hill with the Armed Services Committee mm. and the Intelligence Committees uh, for the space and missile uh, uh, portfolio that I, I was uh, kind of the champion of. Uh, my job would be not necessarily answer any question they had on Capitol Hill, uh, but to make sure I had the right expert to meet them in the right room. If they wanted to take our budget in any area, uh, I would make sure that they understood exactly why uh, we were doing what we were doing and so forth. And, and that experience of understanding how the political process actually works to defend the president's budget, what the process is to to go in there, it, it'd be you'd actually be pretty pleased. Uh, the level of rigor that uh, Congress actually looks at each line, I mean, he thinks there's billions of dollars in it and just lots of money just funnels through. But even when I was working it, uh, we would have to defend down to like $10,000 lines, you know, really? that you needed this amount of money in this line. Uh, the, the Congress is very uh, protective of where they allot money. And there's there's weird things that you would never know. They issue co- what we call colors of money. And, and if they give you money in one color, you can't spend it in another color. Uh, they very tightly control that purse because it's how they uh, uh, reward their constituents and make sure that money goes where they want it and not where the president wants to uh, to spend it per se. So in, in all this role, d- did you have interface with any legislators? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. I, uh, I took uh, – uh, the Air Force typically runs what we call the CODELs, the Congressional Delegation Visits, uh, because we have the airplanes. Uh, yeah, the Navy does some, but uh, we do a lot of that. So whenever there was a, a congressional delegation or staff delegation, I did a lot more of those where I took congressional staffers that are on the uh, the permanent uh, committees in Congress. But I took a number of congressmen uh, to any time there was anything related to something space. I was the operator that, that would take them there. 
I, I took trips a couple years, for instance, to a, a Congresswoman Jane Harmon's house in California, where she hosted members of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, took my boss, uh, who was the Undersecretary of the Air Force, to that event and things like that. There are two big announcements this within the last year that Cedarville has made that I think is huge for your area. And that's first the, the announcement of the $40 million Scharnberg Business Center that's currently under construction uh, right now between the Stevens Student Center and the Dixon Ministry Center. And then the second announcement uh, in late September was the announcement of the Robert W. Plaster School of Business. How will these two announcements impact the school of business and your students? Well, I think it gives us a premier facility uh, to be able to educate our students uh, you know, we need bigger classrooms. We're just busting at the seams, like a lot of parts of Cedarville right now. Uh, but uh, we've, we we don't aren't able to do the kind of quality education we'd like. Uh, even little things. A, a lot of what people want uh, us to teach students and students really prefer is a lot of these group activities. Okay. Well, when you have the rows of of desks that really can't change. Yeah. It doesn't, it's the, the classroom doesn't facilitate. Well, we've been able to design a whole bunch of rooms to really be uh, much more modular and yeah. enable us to do different kinds of things inside the classroom. I really think it's going to, uh, to show the, the commitment of the university uh, to business, which is going to help uh, with a lot more students want to come to business, knowing that the university is behind uh, business in a big way. $40 million building has to be pretty massive. What's, what's the, the composition of that building and how will it, you know, you talked about the classroom, the, mm-hmm. the modulation, but is it going to really enhance the learning experience for the students? It will. And it, it's it, one thing, it's, it's really difficult uh, also to create an identity in a, in a very small building where there's no place you can meet. I mean, our lar- largest classroom uh, in, in Milner currently holds 88 people. We got uh, like four majors that have, more than 88 students. You can't put the business students together. You can't even put yeah. many of the majors in one room okay. together. And, and, and you certainly can't have activities. We try to do some things in the lobby from time to time. And that, that gets packed after you get more than about 70 people. And when we're sitting at right now of approximately 560 students, well, you can see we really need some space. Are you the largest uh, academic discipline? No, uh, no. Uh, uh, I think engineering is right now. I mean, it goes and, back and forth a lot. Forth. I think we're number two. I think we passed uh, nursing uh, this year okay. uh, again. But you know, it, we're always nursing, engineering, and business are always yeah. the, the big three. So when you when you compare your career, you think about being on the team that created that ballistic missile that would intersect. You talk about the Brookings Institution mm-hmm. and all that stuff on Capitol Hill. Now you're dean of the School of Business here at Cedarville. Um, what are some thoughts that you come to in mind that uh, tell you that uh, you've had a, a rewarding career? Uh, it's really just the uh, the idea that God doesn't waste anything, right? The things that, uh, you know, you wouldn't think necessarily that time in the Air Force might have something directly related, but it really does. I mean, that's, that's what I have. It's more a sense of gratitude that God gave me opportunities and experiences, which every day some aspect of something I learned uh, came into play. Today, I had a, a young student, uh, uh, actually a recent graduate that's come back. He's finishing up an entrepreneurial effort trying to get a, a, a startup off the ground. And we're talking about how you approach a, 
you know, uh, lean startup theory, which is really just how, how do you how do you learn faster, build faster, get feedback from a customer faster? Well, that's very analogous to uh, something that w- we learned in military theory from the first Gulf War of something called an OODA loop, uh, where, where the goal is to work through the decision space faster than your opponent so you can defeat them. If you can make decisions faster, you win the battle. Well, the same thing happens, and I was relating that that kind of story to the student. If you can gain information about what the customer really wants faster than your competitors, you can go. You can get your, your product to improve better, and, and you will be able to succeed in the entrepreneurial journey. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah. These experiences, God doesn't waste anything. Yeah. So, Jeff, as we wrap up the, the program, I want to end on, uh, on a story that I know about that you've shared with me before. Some people know about it, um, and that's a um, something that you did several years ago. I believe you were in the military at the time, and that you made a profound impact in the life of a then 15-year-old Australian girl with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as you donated blood stem cells. What motivated you to make this life-saving donation? Well, it's, it's a really uh, cool story in lots of ways. Uh, it started when I was stationed at Vandenberg Air Force Base, uh, in California. And there was a young girl, a young Lieutenant in our, our, my squadron who, uh, who was selected. Uh, She she signed up to to be a donor match and was selected and got to donate. And, you know, and then she was all fired up to it because she had helped save somebody's life to get everybody Mm -hmm. on base. And we'd all did the big blood drive to test (laughs) and so forth. And so, you know, gave the blood and like, like the rest of the squadron, rest, really the rest of the wing, uh, but it was I was here in uh, I, I guess 2015, and I get a phone call, and I hadn't even thought about this. And they says, uh, uh, "Colonel Heyman," uh, and they reminded me of I I'd signed up for this. Are you still willing to be considered? Uh, you're a match, and mm. yeah, so that was pretty cool. And and uh, there's no question. Of course, you're going to do it. It's uh, it's 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 you can't even believe. It, it's almost because you're the unique match. God had prepared my blood for her. Yeah. How could you say no to that, right? Yeah. You know, and it, it really wasn't that bad because they, uh, there's two ways that they can get uh, bone marrow. And one's kind of painful, I guess. They draw it out of your, with a needle and, out of your, and that's not, not, not fun for that. Uh, but the, the process they did with, with me and they do now with almost everybody is they, uh, they su- get, inject you with some drugs that super energizes your, uh, your blood to create more of these platelets and so okay. forth. And it's it's the the worst. It, it just makes you feel uncomfortable, almost like you have a little bit of the flu for a day. Uh, I, I had a little trouble sleeping the first night because they do it over several days to get your blood run. And then they put you on a machine. They kind of filter out, and then they get it on a jet and fly it to Australia. So did you do that here in Dayton, or did you go no, somewhere else? No, they, uh, they had a hospital, uh, you know, uh, I think it was Georgetown uh, that we did that. Okay. So they flew, flew my wife and I out for that. To, to D.C. Yeah, and then for, you, so we were there better part of a week, you know, okay. Monday through Thursday or Friday. So, and so I believe even to this day, you do not even know the name of the individual, who this young girl is. Um, but through the Department of Defense Marrow Donor Program, um, you received a letter from this Australian girl. And let me read a section of the letter and get your reaction to it. She writes, we don't know your name. We don't know how old you are or which country you are from. We don't know if you're male or female. However, one thing we are certain of is your willingness to help another human being by agreeing to donate your precious stem cells. We are most grateful for your life-saving gift and thank you from the bottom of our hearts. When you got that letter, what went through your heart and your mind when you read it? 
She wrote other things that you don't quote there. I mean, she's, right. she's a big into comic books. The Marvel sees she's Captain America Civil whatever war was her favorite. And she says, I'm, I'm kind of geeky, in a, but I love maths. She made it plural for, I guess that's the way they say it over there. Uh, and, you know, when I was a kid, I, I had a big comic book collection, loved the Marvel heroes too. Uh, but the thing that blew me away that really uh, got me emotional was when she said she had my blood. Because mm. she's now B negative. Mm. That's so cool. Mm. You know, she has. Uh, you know, anyway. No, keep that, going. That, that's just that's just wild that somebody else. Uh, you know, my blood is made now her blood, and and she says, uh, you know, because you're B negative. So yeah, that that really was. You guys special. will always be humanly connected. Yeah, yeah. Do you think uh, there's an opportunity you'll ever get to meet her? Uh, I doubt it. I mean, the, because they they didn't let her know. I when I was told about the program that they. Uh, you as the donor can't uh, uh, um, reach out, but they could reach out to you. And they said they might, uh, but I guess Australia's rules, from what I understand, is they won't let them uh, know. So, really? Yeah, which is okay. And, yeah, let me follow on on that. Yeah. So as as you you know, and uh, when this happened, we you publicized it, Mr. PR here at, at Cedarville, and. Jenna Reno told me to. Okay, yeah, and I and I didn't mind. I mean, we we did the same thing in the Air Force. Our young lieutenant, we got all the good public relations because the Air Force was doing something good, and and I totally understand it. And because it gets the message out, and encourages others to do. It. So we had a right. student here that heard that an Army ROTC guy. Oh, really? And he got selected to do it, and then he. Uh, told me, uh, I heard from him again. He got selected twice. So two more lives were saved because of you promoting the story, mm-hmm. him hearing do what I did after I did what, uh, you know, uh, uh, the the young LT in my uh, my shop did. So, you know, that's yeah. that's why you publicize these things. Yeah. It's not that, you know, to make us look good or. It's, it's know, not self-promotion. Else. Yeah. It's, uh, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a tool that the Lord has given us to use to share good stories that have, earthly and eternal impact and and that's what you have done not just in your in this story with this young girl but as you've modeled christ in your military career and leading our our business school here at cedarville so uh, jeff i thank you for spending uh, some time with me on the podcast and uh, i look forward to spending more time with you as we uh, continue our work at cedarville thanks for joining me glad to be here Thank you for listening to the Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. If you were encouraged by today's episode, share it with a friend. Please rate and review this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And connect with us at Cedarville on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another inspiring Cedarville story for God's glory.